You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this again is the Warrior Priest Podcast, Season 2, Episode 3. And as always, we are your hosts, Bill Winter. Back again. And I am Donovan Riley. We're going to jump back in this episode as we have been into the Warrior Ethos by Stephen Pressfield, Meditation 24 on the Purity of the Weapon, and then dive back into Bushido, the Soul of Japan by Nazo Natobi. So Pressfield writes again to review, the civilian sometimes misconstrues the warrior code. He takes it to be one of simple brutality. Overpower the enemy, show no mercy, win at all costs. But the warrior ethos commands that brute aggression be tempered by self-restraint and guided by moral principle. Soldiers of the Israeli Defense Forces, who often must fight against enemies who target civilians, who strike from or stockpile weapons within houses of worship, and who employ their own women and children as human shields, are taught to act according to a principle called Tohar Hanashech, purity of the weapon. This derives from two verses in the Old Testament. What it means is that the individual soldier must reckon himself what is the moral use of his weapon and what is the immoral use. When an action is unjust, the warrior must not take it. Alexander and his campaigns always looked beyond the immediate clash to the prospect of making today's foe into tomorrow's ally. After conquering an enemy in the field, his first act was to honor the courage and sacrifice of his antagonists, and to offer the vanquished warriors a place of honor within his own corps. By the time Alexander reached India, his army had more fighters from the ranks of his former enemies than from those of his own Greeks and Macedonians. Cyrus of Persia believed that the spoils of his victories were meant for one purpose so that he could surpass his enemies in generosity. Quote, I contend against my foes in this arena only, the capacity to be of greater service to them than they are to me. Alexander operated by the same principle. Quote, Let us conduct ourselves so that all men wish to be our friends and all fear to be our enemies. The capacity for empathy and self-restraint will serve us powerfully, not only in our external wars, but in the conflicts within our own hearts. And that again is Meditation 24, Purity of the Weapon in the Warrior Ethos by Stephen Pressfield. You got anything you want to add to that, Bill? I, uh, maybe I'll ask him on Twitter or something, but it, I am curious to know which two passages they're getting this concept from. In Cyrus and Alexander? Uh, no, that the, uh, the IDF has drawn this idea mm -hmm. of purity of the weapon out of two verses in the Old Testament. Right, which verses is he uh, referring to? Yeah, uh, that's really my only question. With and that's that. actually, I have not gotten to that book yet. He does write a novel about the Six Days War, correct? Uh, yeah, the Six Day War. Yeah, um, he, he has a novel about that as well. Oh, sweet. Yeah, I it's on my list. That. Ah. Yeah. I'm out. I've got Tides of War in the queue now. And then nice. that's going to be the next one I read after Tides. Yeah, that is a great book, Tides is. Yeah, if, yeah, if you're listening and you want a, just a solid read, not just a great novel, but a great historical novel, Stephen Pressfield's novels are second to none. Mm-hmm. In fact, yeah. I was just recommending them to a student last night because he listens to audiobook while he works. And I said, I bet you there's, in my opinion, there's no better than novel to listen to while you're working on audiobook than Stephen Pressfield's Gates of Fire. Oh, yeah. Yep. Well, yeah, that uh, Virtues of War is really good. Mm -hmm. There's Tides of War. Uh, yeah, you know, Afghan, Afghan campaign. campaign. Yeah, exactly. Don't call her biscuits. That's right. Don't call her biscuits. <laughs> That's a fantastic novel. Heartbreaking too, actually. I yeah, it really is. He's he's a great author. Mm. Um, but this idea of restraint and empathy right. that is going to draw us right into 
chapter four Bushido mm-hmm. today, specifically picking up in uh, what chapter three. At the end of chapter three, right? At the end of chapter three, as a segue into uh, four. Yeah. Here. Let's just dive into it then. Yeah. This is the end of chapter three, page 49 in my edition of Bushido. And what page is it in yours? 17. There we go. <laughs> that always makes me chuckle. Tuttle. Tuttle. So the very conclusion then of this chapter, chapter three, starting as right reason, Giri has, in my opinion, often stooped to casuistry. It has even degenerated into cowardly fear of censure. I might say of Giri what Scott wrote of patriotism, that, quote, as it is the fairest, so it is often the most suspicious mask of other feelings. Carried beyond or below right reason, Giri becomes a monstrous misnomer. It harbored under its wings every sort of sophistry and hypocrisy. It would have been easily turned into a nest of cowardice if Bushido had not a keen and correct sense of courage, the spirit of daring and bearing. Yeah. Well, and to this point, um, the importance of this right reason when it comes to duty or here very shortly, courage, any right. of the, the samurai virtues we see that without this right reason, without the courage to go along with it, etc., what duty or giri falls into is uh, the Nuremberg defense. Sure. You know, oh, I was just doing my duty and, you right. know, slaughtering people. Diffusion of responsibility, it's called. Yeah. 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 It's like the old um, pictures from the 60s where you see these crowds of white men and women, children actually standing on a tree where someone's been lynched. Mm-hmm. And there's a famous one that always that I always recall where they're all facing this lynched black man hanging from this tree, and there's one guy in the crowd who's turning around looking at the photographer. Mm-hmm. And I always think that one guy, for example, could say, well, what, what, what could I do? Yep. Or yep. the famous picture of the guy with his arms folded while everyone else is uh, saluting Hitler. Yeah, yeah, I know what picture you're talking yeah. about. In fact, his fia- so the the backstory in that picture you can Google it is his fiance was Jewish, mm-hmm. and actually on account of that picture, German intelligence found him, and uh, as far as I know, they both died in the concentration camps. Yeah, yeah, that'd be the opposite of what he's talking here, which is that monstrous misnomer, the sophistry and hypocrisy. Yeah, of, of yeah. duty gone wrong. Yep. Well, and it's not just the guys who are going to say, well, I was just doing my duty. Mm -hmm. It's the people who also were unwilling to say or do anything to attempt to stop it. Right, right. It's the sin of omission or the sin of commission. Which one are you going to choose? Exactly. Well, we have um, uh, one example might be at the uh, the uh, protests in Portland, all the Antifa nonsense. You have a number of people in those crowds. Yeah, not everybody is beating up old men with bike locks. Mm-hmm. But you have more than enough people standing there simply watching without ever intervening. Right, right. Well, it reminds me, I have to look it up. I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but it's, there's a novel written by a journalist about these German policemen in, in Poland in World War II. And they were sent to Poland and their job was to basically guard these prison camp, this prison camp. Mm-hmm. And the problem or the, the way it was set up was that it was all voluntary and they were actually chosen because of their morality because they were very moral people. And all of the policemen that volunteered to go were, they predated the Nazi party, the National Democratic Socialist Party's rise to power. So they weren't members from the cradle of the Nazi party. Mm-hmm. And as a consequence, oh, I'm trying to think of the name of it. It's driving me crazy. But <laughs> um, what ends up happening then is the book examines how these moral men, these family men with wives and children how within just two years they went from 
being moral upholders of the law to shooting pregnant women in a field outside of a prison camp in Poland. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's, a, it's a case study in how easy it is through peer pressure, through very slight manipulations in, in terms of phrases, and how brotherhood, for example, can be manipulated mm-hmm. in such a way that you collectively, because again, I don't want to, what is that in here? He says, it's the fear of censure. Yeah. Yep. That you think you're doing something noble, but it's actually cowardice. Mm-hmm. That you don't want to show your fellows, your brothers, that you can't do the job. Mm-hmm. And that's what's really weird too about these policemen is at any time they could quit and go home. They didn't have to keep going because it goes from we're just supposed to guard them to, okay, now we're going to give them a slap across the back of the head to here comes the rubber hose, the baton to now we're shooting them. Mm-hmm. Like how do you dehumanize an entire population of people in such a way that you can then do what you do to them that's heinous and, and horrific? Yeah. Like you said yeah. about the Nuremberg trials, this is the thing is that, yes, there were truly evil men at the top, and there were truly evil men in the prison camps, for example, and prison camp guards and so forth. And, mm-hmm. you know, Victor Frankl and Man's Search for Meaning discusses the prison camps that even the Jews who were given authority over other Jews by the Germans became evil in, yeah. in the way they treated their own fellows. Mm-hmm. And as Victor Frankl says in the book, the worst of us walked out of those prison camps. Yeah. Because those who held to their ethics and their morals, those who remained faithful to their belief in their God, they all died rather quickly. Mm-hmm. The people that were willing to lie, cheat, steal, uh, betray others to get a, a crust of bread, those are the ones who survived. And that's Frankel's point is that only those who walked out of the prison camps, those who set up the nation of Israel in 48 or whatever, they were, in his opinion, the worst of the Jews. They mm-hmm. weren't the best. They weren't the cream of the crop, the kind of people that you're like, okay, we're going to start a new state. And so we're going to need the best people to do this. He's like, no. Only the worst, the survivors, escaped the prison camps. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting point. It, it was demonstrated, uh, what was it, the 70s, the Stanford Prison Experiment. Yes. You can First, watch that on uh, YouTube. Yeah. And there's um, a movie that came out a couple of years ago about it. Oh, was there? I yeah. didn't know that. They, um, they made a movie, maybe even last year. Uh, the the long and short of it is that this uh, psychologist took – big group of college students divided them into prisoners and prison guards. And what he found was that very, very quickly, the prison Mm -hmm. guards as well as the prisoners also lost any sense of moral decency, if you will. Right. Right. They, they rather quickly, by the way, exceedingly quickly. Yeah. And this comes back to the same point, the fear of censure or the, the fear of being that guy, if you will, who won't, you know, beat on the guy that you just had economics 101 with last mm-hmm. fall. Is- Ordinary men. I'm sorry. The name of the book I was thinking of was called Ordinary Men Reserve Police Battalion 101 in the Final Solution. Oh, okay. Ordinary yeah. men, that they're just ordinary men that end up mm-hmm. doing these horrible, horrific things. Sorry. Yeah. No, no, you're, you're fine. It, it's good to have the reference in there. The, the point, however, to, to kind of summarize it is we see the same effect on social media. Right. Um, yep. Perhaps amplified mm-hmm. where you have a lot of people who are otherwise uh, morally decent people who will not speak up, who will not uh, do anything mm-hmm. for fear of censure, be right. it um, getting shadow banned or blocked or, or whatever it may be, right. you know, or just having a bunch of dislikes on their comment or right. whatever. That's all I got on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it, it goes to the point, and this is a good lead in then to the next chapter that we want to cover on mm-hmm. courage that as it, uh, Natobe points out then as he does in the all of chapter three right reason leads to right action mm-hmm. and therefore you can't act correctly you can't act morally unless you first have in your own mind fixed the way forward so to speak yeah the moral path but that is the path it's an uphill path 
and it's easy. It's just not simple. Yeah. Because as you noted, there's plenty of people who are going to throw rocks. It's the, the, the bucket of crabs analogy. Mm. You're trying to be a moral person. You're manifesting that in your life. You're standing up for your principles. You live a life of integrity and character. Plenty of people around you are going to want to tear you down and pull you back into the bucket mm-hmm. because you're making them look bad or you're making them think about themselves in a way that they just don't enjoy. They don't enjoy that kind of reflection. Yeah. Well, misery loves company as right. the old phrase goes. Uh, it's what Natobi is doing throughout this book is he's laying out right reason. Mm-hmm. And then as the antidote, as the solution to the very problems he's describing, uh, for example, here, uh, duty becoming a monstrous misnomer. Well, the first part then of this antidote is chapter four, courage. So right. we've, we're, we've established a foundation of right reason. Now, how is this right reason actually carried out? Correct. Right. So the first step then is going to be courage. Um, well, we talked about, I think it was maybe in the first episode on Bushido, that you have to have a foundation to work from to begin with. Mm-hmm. So what is that ethical code, that warrior ethos, the moral code that you're going to live by? Where is it coming from? And how then are you going to manifest that in your life? Because how can you even discuss morals, good, bad, right, wrong, and so forth, if you haven't first already established a foundation, a kind of litmus test for right versus wrong? Mm-hmm. And if you can't have that conversation and go really deep on that, just real brief though, where does the notion of right and wrong, good and evil even come from in the first place? Because nowadays, especially with the popularity amongst a certain demographic uh, of socialist and Marxist principles, communist principles, these are social constructs. Mm-hmm. They're not metaphysical, they're social. But I would still push the point, oh, they're social constructs. Well, where did the people that manufactured this, this distinction between good and evil and wrote the definitions, where did they get there? their foundation for these things from Mm -hmm. that you have to run it back at some point and ask, well, this is the right thing to do. Why? Where'd you come up with that? Yeah. Then you can have the conversation about um, giri and right reason and right action. But I still think you have to establish that beachhead of like, this is my code and this is where it comes from. And I agree with it. Well, and it's a code that needs to be necessarily battle tested. It's not I just say, yeah. you can come up with sitting on your toilet one day <laughs> um, and decide that this is it. Right. Well, you might, but then the question is, what is the value of that idea? Let's say you, let's say you come away with that. You come out of the bathroom and you say, hey, honey, honey, I had this great idea when I was in the bathroom. It's fantastic. It's an entire moral code that we can live by. And then you do nothing with that. What is the value of a great idea that is not then tested in concrete reality? And I would say the value of that idea is zero. Oh, yeah. Because how do you know that's a great idea if you haven't tested it? Mm -hmm. And as we were talking before we hit record, if you don't test that in the crucible of life or death situations, you haven't really tested it to the breaking point. You haven't given it, you know, run it through that stress test. Yeah, exactly. Well, that is, that is where courage will come in. Right. Courage is going to say it is right to stress test my newest, greatest moral code. Right. Because, yeah, if it doesn't hold up under scrutiny, it's like we talked about in mm-hmm. the past. If you read Marcus Aurelius or you read Xenophon's biography of Cyrus or you read Natobe and others, and you agree with what they're saying and you say, I'm going to live this way. I'm going to manifest these teachings in my life. I have a copy of meditations next to my bed. It's what I read at night before I go to sleep. If I wake up the next morning and completely forget what I just read meditations 12 hours ago or actually six hours ago, what good is that other mm-hmm. than a kind of ego stroking exercise? Yeah. Yep. Versus now I'm going to live this today. And this brings us, I think, to the point then of, okay, I'm going to live it. But what happens then in those tests, whether they're minor or major, when you do face opposition, when there is an obstacle, what are you going to do? Are you going to quit? 
Are you going to try and find a, a shortcut or a hack to get around the obstacle? Are you going to go through the obstacle? And if you do choose to go through that obstacle or move that obstacle out of your way, what is necessary to do that? And I think that thing is courage. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Otherwise, you're going to fall into the fear of censor. You're going to fall into that peer pressure mm -hmm. that is going to make you, uh, given time, uh, enough time and the right circumstances, sure. will make you one of the Polish prison guards. Right. Well, and I'll use a very simple analogy no. too, because um, we just, my wife and I had this conversation last night, and it's a small way, I think, of demonstrating this point is that um, I'm cutting weight right now for a competition on Sunday, and then mm -hmm. I have another competition August 17th. And I have a choice. I can either compete at the 170 plus weight class or the 170 and below weight class. Now, I'm a really small 186, and that's where I was at three weeks ago. I was 186 pounds. In relation to other 186 pound and aboveers, yeah, I'm a very small 186, but I'm a very big 170. Mm -hmm. And for those of you who don't understand grappling or fighting, getting beat up by a 150 pound dude versus a 210 pound dude when you're <laughs> an ectomorph frame like I am, huge difference. Huge. Mm -hmm. So I was, you know, Monday, something happened over the weekend and I went from being on point to make weight to all of a sudden I just put on four pounds of, of weight, just fluid, oh, inflammation okay. weight. So I went back up to 177, super frustrated. I'm like, I got six days to lose seven pounds. Mm. So I was talking to my instructor about this. I said, hey, don't worry about it. He said, just so long as you know, you're in the 170s, it's not, you know, the first tournament's an in-house tournament, so we're competing against each other, our own teammates. So I'll be competing against purple belts, brown belts, other blue belts, high white belts. And he's, you know, he basically gave me a pass. He's like, if you come in at like 175, 174, I'm not going to not let you compete at you know, 170 and below. But in my mind, I had already decided I'm going to come in at 170. I'm going to get on weight when I walk on the scale, step on the scale on Sunday morning. Why? If he's given me a pass, if he said, you don't have to kill yourself to make 170, why not just take that? Why, why do this? And as I was explaining to my wife last night, because another guy said, well, I can't compete at 170. I'm 174. And my instructor said, hey, don't worry about it. Just show up at 174. Not a big deal. Now, for me, and this is just me, it's a matter of discipline and self-control. It's mm -hmm. a matter of not quitting mentally like I was talking about, uh, I think, in the last episode or if I hadn't, I was talking on another podcast about it, that if I make up my mind that I'm going to make weight, then I'm going to make weight. And yeah. I'm going to do what I need to do to make weight. And it's not about the tournament. It's not about whether it's an in-house tournament or a regional tournament. It's not about any of that stuff at all, anything external. It's about my decision to hold myself to a standard, which is I said I'm going to make 170 and I'm going to make 170. And if I have to drop 15 or 16 pounds in three weeks to do it, I'm going to do it. And I'll do what I have to to do it. And I'm not going to complain about it. Mm -hmm. Because I see this as another, again, it's another one of those stress tests for my mind. Yeah. And in a way for my body. So for me then, when he gives me the pass, I can take that pass. But to me, that's a shortcut. And it's also quitting mentally. Mm -hmm. And if I quit mentally on something as simple as cutting weight for an in-house tournament, well, then I've just taken a step for me in the wrong direction mm -hmm. and said, well, I, I want to be mentally strong, but over here, I'm going to give myself a pass versus no, I made up my mind. I'm going to stick to my guns. No, but I'm not holding anybody else to the same set of principles that I, that I'm holding myself to. But for me to quit in this little thing is like the frog in boiling water. Yeah. Is if I quit here in this small thing, well, what's going to happen when there's something really big that comes and confronts me, some huge obstacle in my way, some real life or death struggle that comes up? Well, I already quit in relation to a small thing. So then whether it's in a competition when I'm in a really bad situation or whether it's in life in general and I'm in a crisis, well, I've already made up my mind that I'm going to quit if it's too hard. Mm -hmm. And therefore, what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to quit. And once I quit, I'm going to have to start to justify why I quit to myself. Well, now I'm lying to myself. And I think for me anyways, that's essentially what ends up happening here when right reason becomes casuistry, becomes selfistry and hypocrisy. Yeah. Is you end up lying to yourself and yet also then lying to 
your brothers and your training partners, your family and friends and coworkers. And then it's just, a, it's, it gets, it's like I tell my kids, once you lie and you get away with it, the next lie is that much easier to do. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and that goes along with most things in life. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you're trying to improve anything, whether it's a skill or yourself or, or whatever, one of the biggest things is momentum. And yes, keep very much. That momentum going. Right. So think of to to use this cutting weight example. Mm-hmm. Think of saying, "Well, I still got three weeks to make weight. I got plenty of time. So just today, I'm going to go ahead and cheat. At, yeah, and cheat. Well, what you are doing is think of it in terms of stuffing pebbles into your shoes. Right. You know, it makes it that much harder to keep going. Mm -hmm. Eventually, what ends up happening is you start to pile the pebbles up in your pockets and in your backpack and everything else until you cannot move forward any any longer. Right. And that is, uh, as far as self-improvement goes, uh, especially morally, that is where the difficulty is. Mm -hmm is that unable to maintain that momentum, you are inevitably going to stop and then reverse course. Right. Um, and I know it from personal experience. Um, this then is what is so important about courage, mm-hmm. is that ability to say, okay, well, this sucks. I want that piece of cake or, or whatever, mm-hmm. but... My, this goal that I have set for myself, this standard that I have set for myself, demands that that cake needs to sit in the fridge for another, uh, what was it, three weeks mm-hmm. or what, whatever it may be. Right, right. Um, courage means we're not going to take the easy yeah. way now. Right. And that is how improvement happens. Absolutely. So let's dive into this. Yeah. So yeah. this is chapter four now, Courage, the Spirit of Daring and Bearing. So Natobe writes, Courage was scarcely deemed worthy to be counted among virtues unless it was exercised in the cause of righteousness. Mm-hmm. In his Analectics, or Analects, sorry. In his Analects, Confucius defines courage by explaining, as is often his want, what its negative is. Quote, perceiving what is right, he says, and doing it not argues lack of courage. So there you go. Yep. Perceive this is the right path, but then you don't take that path. You lack courage. Mm -hmm. Courage. I'll put the epigram into a positive statement and it runs, quote, courage is doing what is right to run all kinds of hazards, to jeopardize one's self, to rush into the jaws of death. These are too often identified with valor. Mm -hmm. And in the profession of arms, such rashness of conduct, what Shakespeare calls valor misbegot is unjustly applauded, but not so in the precepts of knighthood. Death for a cause unworthy of dying for was called a dog's death. To rush into the thick of battle and to be slain in it, says a prince of Mito, is easy enough, and the merest churl is equal to the task. But, he continues, it is true courage to live when it is right to live and to die only when it is right to die. And yet the prince had not even heard of the name of Plato, who defines courage as, quote, the knowledge of things that a man should fear and that he should not fear. Mm -hmm. A distinction which is made in the West between moral and physical courage has long been recognized among us. What samurai youth has not heard of great valor and the valor of a villain. Hmm. That's so great. And actually, I would add one other aspect or one other kind of courage, which uh, Jim Webb talks about, former uh, Marine Vietnam leader and also a senator, I think, or maybe congressman from Virginia. I can't remember. I think a senator. But Jim also adds daily courage. Mm. So you have mm-hmm. physical courage. You have moral. So physical courage is being able to, again, cut weight or being able to walk on the mat or get in the ring and fight against yeah. opponents trying to you know push your face through the back of your head 
moral courage is what he's describing here, which is to do what is right when it is right to do it. But daily courage then is, for example, let's say you have a triple amputee and every day it takes him 15 minutes to get out of bed and he does it. And he determines, I'm going to learn how to drive again. I'm going to learn how to take care of myself again. I'm going to learn how to do things for myself. I'm going to climb a mountain. I'm going to run a marathon. I'm going to get into CrossFit. I'm going to show up for my wife and kids. I'm going to show up for my community. That's daily courage. Mm-hmm. It's to not, basically what Jim says is it's to take the gifts that God gave you and do something with them. Yep. No matter what happens, no matter what obstacle is thrown at you, whether you're a triple amputee, you're an addict, or you simply set in motion, um, what do you want to say? Bad decisions that have led to a situation where in the present tense, you look at yourself in the mirror and say, I don't like the person that I see. Mm-hmm. Daily yep. courage then is, I'm going to get up at 4.30 in the morning. I'm going to jog. I'm going to work out. I'm going to read and exercise my mind. I'm going to live a disciplined life, a life of self-control. And I'm going to make these difficult decisions for myself to better myself, to grow. Because I know as hard as it is now, in six months, in a year, in five years, I'm going to look in the mirror and I'm not going to hate the person that I see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think daily courage comes from that physical and moral courage. Yeah. Yeah. Or feeds back into it. However you want to phrase it. Yeah. That that's, that's interesting. Maybe we might say that those two are the foundation then of the daily courage. Right. And maybe um, it goes back to also though, that's the foundation of right reason or right reason becomes the foundation for these three kinds of moral or uh, courage. Yeah. <clears throat> Regardless of how you want to categorize it though, this idea is of doing what is right, mm-hmm. plain and simple, regardless of the situation, regardless of how much it sucks or doesn't, whatever, that is the definition of courage. Mm-hmm. And so too often what ends up happening is we find the gray areas in order to take the easy road. Right. Yep. And that, that doesn't help ourselves, let alone doesn't help our neighbors. Mm-hmm. And there is a difference between looking at the gray areas or coming up with excuses and uh, the triple amputee in the example you used, mm-hmm. being unable to tomorrow go do the uh, Chicago marathon. Right. You know, duh. That's not what we're saying. Right. But what is being said, though, is that identifying those times that we make excuses or we want to make excuses mm-hmm. because we all do, being able to honestly identify those times and recognize them for what they are, excuses, right. and then being able to take the right action instead of the what in that case may be the easier action that Mm -hmm. then is courage right wrong courage is jumping on the bandwagon or charging in the in the case of the samurai here charging in to die when at a stupid moment right you know we we laud the firefighters who died on 9-11 for a worthy cause, trying to pull people out of the building. We wouldn't laud a firefighter who everyone has gotten out of the building and the thing is just burning down who decides, you know what, I'm just going to go ahead and run in there and die. We would all shake our heads and go, wow, what an idiot. Right. It reminds me of a quote from Mark Twain that I, I really enjoy, which is whenever you find yourself on the side of the majority, it's time to question yourself mm-hmm. is that you, the reason that books like Natobe's or, or others along this line, again, meditations by Aurelius and others, the reason that they withstand the test of time and yet are not lived out popularly amongst the majority of people is because we prefer to go with the crowd. We're lemmings, we're sheeple. Mm-hmm. And this goes back to the point is that, that's why you don't see courage on display every day necessarily. Yep. Because courage is difficult. Physical yeah. courage is difficult in a society that is given to lethargy 
and unhealthiness. Moral courage is difficult to find in a society that you pointed out prefers to shade out the, the black and the white and make it gray. Mm-hmm. Daily courage is difficult to find when everyone around you is saying, don't be so hard on yourself. Reward yourself. Learn how to forgive and love yourself. Mm-hmm. It's like I always tell people at, at 1 a.m. in the morning when the bar is closing and you realize that you're four hours late going home and you start to feel guilty and complain, there are plenty of people at the bar that will absolve you of your sin at that point. Oh, yeah. Because as you noted, birds of a feather. Mm-hmm. Misery loves company. You, you know, come up with the analogy, like attracts like, as Aristotle said, whatever. It's difficult to not only think soberly and seriously about these matters of physical, moral, and daily courage, it's even more difficult to actually implement them in your life. Mm-hmm. But as you noted, once you do, every day you will be stronger than you were the day before. Yeah. And precisely. as I said to a friend this morning, here's a, a, an example of perspective on this point. Then you can either look backwards and say, I really regret what I did a year ago. Or you can say, I'm really grateful that I'm not doing the same stuff today that I did a year ago. Yeah. It's yeah. a matter of perspective. You can either live with regret about stuff that you can't change, or you can live with gratitude because in the present tense, you can look back and go, today I am a better version of the person that I was a year ago. Mm-hmm. But it's perspective. It's all perspective. Yeah. Well, to, to put this in uh, exercise terms, Let's say you want to lose 20 pounds of fat and gain 20 pounds of muscle. Right. And it's going to take just the way you've planned it out. It's going to take about two years, Mm -hmm. right? For that 100% change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what happens is approximately every two weeks, you're making a 1% improvement. Right. Which is huge, Mm -hmm. which is actually shockingly huge. Mm -hmm. So two years down the line, you've met that goal. You have become 100% different by these small daily improvements. Right. You know, and I get it. We all want the, the instant results, that instant gratification. But the simple fact of the matter is Rome was not built in a day. None Mm -hmm. of us were built in a day. Um, the person that we all are right now today is simply the consequence of the little decisions day by day, sometimes even moment by moment that have accumulated over time. So when you want to lose weight or you want to um, uh, improve your ability to sew, I don't, I don't know, pick the, pick the thing you're attempting to improve. You have to understand that your present skill level is nothing more than the result of the work you've put in previously. Well, right. I don't know how to sew. So if I pick up a thread and needle today, it's not going to be good. But if I keep after it down the line, it will get better and better and better and better. Right. These and you may also discover in this process that you encounter other people who are pursuing the same goals as you. And now all of a sudden you're not doing it alone. Now you have people to encourage you and now you have people to hold you accountable. Yeah. And when you do get beaten down, there's going to be someone to help you get up. Mm -hmm. And that's so important. I'm, I'm all about the rugged individual, but Mm -hmm. life is a team sport, especially when things get hard. Right. You may have 300 people against you, Mm-hmm. You can find three people that are with you. Those 300, not that scary anymore. Because mm-hmm. yep. again, you're not alone. Yep. So let's jump forward then to the next page here. Natobody continues then on this topic. Does this ultra Spartan system of drilling the nerve strike the modern pedagogist? Pedagogist. There we go. Learn how to talk. Does this ultra-Spartan system of drilling the nerve strike the modern pedagogist with horror and doubt? Doubt whether the tendency would not be brutalizing, nipping in the bud the tender emotions of the heart. Let us see in another chapter what other concepts Bushido had of valor. The spiritual aspect of valor is evidenced by composure, calm presence of mind. Tranquility is courage in repose. It is a statical manifestation of valor, as daring deeds are a dynamical 
A truly brave man is ever serene. He is never taken by surprise. Nothing ruffles the equanimity of his spirit. In the heat of battle, he remains cool. In the midst of catastrophes, he keeps level his mind. Earthquakes do not shake him. He laughs at storms. We admire him as truly great, who in the menacing presence of danger or death retains his self-possession. Who, for instance, can compose a poem under impending peril or hum a strain in the face of death. Such indulgence, betraying no tremor in the writing or in the voice, is taken as an infallible index of a large nature, of what we call a capacious mind, yo-yu, which, far from being pressed or crowded, has always room for something more. <laughs> it's such a powerful paragraph. Mm-hmm. Well, and he's, he's touching on here, there was a tradition for centuries of Japanese soldiers, including samurai, writing little poems mm-hmm. on their way to battle. Right. And some of these are really, really poignant things. Um, but to have that ability is what's being lauded here. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the bearing then that comes from courage, the ability to maintain uh, a self-composure that is enough to not just do the right thing, but right. to um, push you on to the extraordinary. Right. Well, and this goes to the point to the same point that the Stoics make, uh, Natomi makes, which is self-control and discipline also, con- it also involves to a large extent self-control and discipline of one's emotions. Mm-hmm. That to become emotional, to allow your emotions to overwhelm you, and we've discussed this in the past too, other people don't make us angry. Other people don't make us sad. We choose to allow right. other people's actions or words to evoke certain emotions. Yeah. We don't have to feel those if we don't want to. We allow ourselves to do that because we live in a post-romantic age. Yeah, yeah. But pre-romanticism, pre-modern, yeah, this is the problem when we read the Stoics or we read Natobe, even though he wrote this in the, in the early 1900s, he's adhering to this ethical code that was futile. Mm-hmm. And a part of that was, if you lose your emotions, you lose the fight. Yep. Like I tell my kids, If you allow others, especially bullies, to see you emotional, they know now where your weak spot is and they know how to manipulate and control you. Or my daughter was at a birthday party yesterday. This girl had too much cake, back to your point, (laughs) and she just decided to punch my daughter in the stomach and then run away before my daughter could judo throw her across the room. (laughs) My daughter, when she came in the door, told me, and the most important thing for her to communicate to me was, Dad... I did not lose my emotions. Good. And I was like, awesome. Did you throw across the room? And she's like, well, I asked the mom for permission first. I'm like, never ask for permission. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) If someone puts their hands on you, I can't actually say on this podcast what I told her to do, but it started with (laughs) F and ended with up. And Mm. was in the middle. (laughs) But the point being is, that's why I said, this is why you learn self-defense. Someone puts their hands on you, wreck them. Yep. And, but never, ever lose control of your emotions. Yep. That, in some ways, that is the most difficult aspect of this to learn. Yep. And maybe that, that's a part of physical courage. Daily courage is also emotional courage. Yeah. To, to stand up for what's right and to say, I'm not going to allow emotion to overwhelm me and determine my decisions, my thoughts, my words, and my actions. Mm-hmm. Because all you have, to, I grew up this way. There's a, the running kind of sad, tragic joke in my family is that we don't get angry. We just go from zero to rage. Mm-hmm. So there are many broken doors, broken windshields, broken faces, broken fingers in my past because I didn't know how to be angry. So I just simply went into a rage and lost control. So I'm great to have around in a fight if I'm really angry because I fly into a rage. But the amount of regret after the fact that required me to self-medicate to escape those thoughts and those feelings was never worth the cost to me or to the people around me. And many a relationship was ruined. And like I said, many much personal property was ruined as a, con- as a consequence of my rages. 
So that in the present tense, especially as a father, but also as an instructor, as a teacher, as a pastor, to, as the psalmist says, be angry, but don't sin. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what he means, which is you can be angry, but don't allow your anger to control you. And that takes a lot of courage, but that's what it means to be, like he says, tranquility, which is courage and repose. Yeah. Well, and the, that's one of the points here. It's not a denial of the fact that there's going to be times that you are angry or sad or whatever emotion, mm-hmm. but not allowing those emotions to then dictate your life, to dictate right. your behavior. Mm-hmm. And instead, you being the one in control. Right. That this comes back to the difference between reaction and response. Right. Uh, a reaction would be somebody, uh, you know, shoves you so you punch him in the nose. Mm-hmm. You know, well, maybe that was an accident. Mm-hmm. It just started something. Or somebody drops, you know, you're at a library and, and somebody drops a book on accident and you flip out over it. These things aren't helpful. They are reactions, granted, but they're not helpful. Right. The response and the difference then is that the response is thought out. Right. The response is that right reason mm-hmm. is actually going on that this person, you know, ended up kind of shoving me. Right. Oh, we're at an airport. He's running late for a plane and not paying attention. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, in the, in the case of the library or whatever, you know, this lady just, the book slipped out of her hand, it fell and, and smacked my foot or whatever. Mm-hmm. It happens. Yeah, it, it does. It does. Um, in fact, I can, I can say this too. If you really want to throw someone off, if you really want to mess with someone's mind, smile and say, thank you. <laughs> especially in sparring. Nothing makes people more uncomfortable than when I'm sparring with them and striking or in grappling. And they're hyperventilating, they're sweating, they're all tensed up, they're throwing as hard as they can, they're kicking as hard as they can, they're scrambling as hard as they can. And I'm just breathing the same way as if we just got on the mat. And mm-hmm. five minutes in, six, seven minutes in, and I'm just smiling and breathing. I'm talking to people that are walking by. Hey, how was your day, Joe? Hey, you know, oh, what did you just catch him with? Oh, that was really cool. Meanwhile, this guy's trying to murder me. <laughs> and I'm acting like we're just out for a walk. It's really demoralizing when the guy that you're trying to murder is smiling at you and saying, hey, thanks. Do that again. That was great. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's also an excellent lesson that they're learning. Um, Stop reacting. Right. Um, To kind of touch on uh, something that seems to, when probably will continue to be a a point um, with, with regardless of the book and stuff is that tendency to take the easy way Mm -hmm. action is easy because it requires no thought right it's just it feels pretty good oh yeah like i said to my wife you know what we're doing sunday after the tournament right we're going to chipotle and i'm going to get a forearm sized burrito (laughs) (laughs) why she's like why would you want to do that it's so gross it's fast food i'm like not after fasting for three and a half weeks it's not Mm mm-hmm and yeah, I'll probably get like two or three bites down before my stomach's like, yeah, we're good. We're done. Yep. yep. What are you doing? But I told her, I'm going to just keep reheating it until I eat the whole thing. Yep. Yep. Because that's the easy path. Why? Because it tastes delicious. Is it bad for me? 100%. Am I going to enjoy every bite? 100%. Mm-hmm. You know, like one of, my, one of my great weaknesses is Sonic. I just, I love Sonic. Mm-hmm. And I love a bacon double cheeseburger, extra large with a caramel shake. And every time we drive by Sonic, even though I know that's not good for me and I know it's going to ruin my day, I'm like, just don't look, don't look, look away, look away. (laughs) Why? Because I know it's bad for me, but it feels so good. (coughs) That's the temptation of the downward path. That's the temptation of the easy path. It usually feels pretty good. At the moment, at least. At the moment. And then later you're laying on your bed in a carb coma going, what did I do? Yeah, right. right. <laughs> you know, my kids are like, Dad, I need you to change uh, Gita's diaper. Uh, I can't. You, you got to do it. I can't, I can't do anything right now. <laughs> I'm dying at the moment. Right. I'm dying inside right now. <laughs> Why? Because I ate that thing. But yep. I thought you wanted to. Shh, don't, don't talk. Don't talk. <laughs> <laughs> 
How dare you judge me? That's right. I don't need Jimmy Cricket right now. I need, I need your, uh, I need your sympathy. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> so let's jump ahead to the end of the chapter now. Yeah. Natobe continues, the sorrow which overtook Antony and Octavius at the death of Brutus has been the general experience of brave men. Kenshin, who fought for 14 years with Shinjin, when he heard of the latter's death, wept aloud at the loss of, quote, the best of enemies. It was this same Kenshin who had set a noble example for all time in his treatment of Shinjin, whose provinces lay in a mountainous region quite away from the sea and who had consequently depended upon the Hojo provinces of the Taikado for salt. Tokaido, sorry. Tokaido provinces for salt. Hojo provinces of the Tokaido for salt. There we go. I'll get it right today. <laughs> the Hojo prince, wishing to weaken him, although not openly at war with him, had cut off from Shinjin all traffic in this important article. Kenshin, hearing of his enemy's dilemma, and able to obtain his salt from the coast of his own dominions, wrote Shinjin that in his opinion, the Hojo Lord had committed a very mean act, and that although he, Kenshin, was at war with him, Shinjin, he had ordered his subjects to furnish him with plenty of salt, adding, quote, I do not fight with salt, but with the sword, affording more than a parallel to the words of Camillus, quote, we Romans do not fight with gold, but with iron. Nietzsche spoke for the samurai heart when he wrote, quote, you are to be proud of your enemy. Then the success of your enemy is your success also. Indeed, valor and honor alike required that we should own as enemies in war, only such as prove worthy of being friends in peace. When valor attains this height, it becomes akin to benevolence. Yep. Which is the point of Pressfield's meditation in the purity of the weapon, which is, as Alexander says, let us conduct ourselves so that all men wish to be our friends and all fear to be our enemies. Mm -hmm. And as he notes, as Pressfield notes, by the time Alexander reached India, his army had more fighters from the ranks of his former enemies than from those of his own Greeks and Macedonians, which, by the way, if you don't know, really irritated the Greek and Macedonian soldiers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, but that's really to the point here then of not only are you to be careful in who you choose to be friend, but also be careful in who you choose to call enemy. Mm -hmm. That actually your greatest friends should be considered in the light of what if they were my enemy and your enemies should be considered in the light of, well, what if they were my friend? Mm -hmm. Would I be proud to call this person friend? Then why am I fighting with this person? Yeah. It's like Jocko said in a recent podcast, you can't be disrespected by someone who doesn't respect themselves. Yep. Likewise, then, why are you fighting with an enemy that you're not even proud to call your friend mm -hmm. or you wouldn't be? And why are you fighting with words instead of the sword? Well, and this comes back to the point we we're bringing up earlier about duty becoming a monstrous misnomer. That is to say, when you have an enemy with whom you would never call friend or, you know, the circumstances different. Right. They are no longer human. Yes, exactly. How much easier then is it to abandon honor, to abandon morality in dealing with them? Right. And that's a great point because if you dehumanize your enemy, you are actually simultaneously dehumanizing yourself. Exactly. Because yeah. you have to justify the monstrous actions you're about to undertake. Exactly. And that's... We all want to say, you know, all's fair in love and war, mm -hmm. you know, when the truth of the matter is, we know it's not, you, uh -huh. you can attempt to convince yourself of that, right. but at the end of the day, you know, it's not true. Right. And no amount of self-justification or likes on uh, social media are going to change that. Right. It also goes to the point of what is the value of human life to you? Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. And because again, I was listening to a, another podcast recently, they were discussing some former, some vets were discussing the, the, the disadvantage, so to speak, and the advantage simultaneously of American troops in Iraq, for example, mm -hmm. Is that for an American soldier, his fellow soldier has an innumerable value and un, an unequivocal value. You can't put a, a, a number on the value of your brother. Yeah. To your, to your right. The Mujahideen, on the other hand, had no value for human life. Mm -hmm. 
and they would use women and children as human shields, as Pressfield points out in the Israeli War too, the Six Day War. That the enemy has no value for human life. They will actually even sacrifice the guy to the right and their left to save themselves. They'll run away and leave them to die. Why? Yeah. Because they have no value for human life. They're willing to sacrifice 10 of theirs for one of ours. Yep. And this was the problem that the French and Americans ran into in Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia. The Vietnam men were more than willing to sacrifice 100 for one American or French soldier's life. Why? Yep. Because eventually you're going to grow tired of the killing and you're going to leave. And we will never grow tired of it. Well, that's because they inherently don't value human life. Right, exactly. And it's not the the value which you place upon your neighbor's life right. is inextricably tied to the value you place on yourself. Right. You know, um, you can't <laughs> you can't say that certain segments of the population can morally be killed off mm -hmm. while at the same time saying that you hold your own life to right. any value. Right. A hundred percent. And, and this is it, actually where this is being verily. Ve can you say verily? I think so. Apparently I can't speak. <laughs> but, um, Verily, verily. Verily. Um, <laughs> I saith to thou. <laughs> exactly. To thee. <laughs> we need to get some uh, Renaissance festival music going in the background. <laughs> um, go put some tights on. But <clears throat> where we can actually see this debate in real time is in Oregon right now, where they are right. debating over the, the legalization of euthanasia of mm -hmm. the old. Right. These same people who say that this segment of the population can and ought, sadly and in a scary way, mm -hmm. be killed, do not value their own lives. Right. Which is why it is always a sliding scale. Mm -hmm. First it's the unborn, then it's the elderly, and then it's just people, it may be people in prison that you deem to be unworthy of life also yeah. because of their crimes. And yeah. eventually it's an ever-tightening circle of violence that will inevitably end up with someone knocking on your door. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, we, the examples of how this goes down each and every time are just spread throughout history. You can hardly take five steps without stumbling over another example of this. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the former Soviet Union is a great example of this. Yeah. Mao's China, shoot, even China today is a great example of this. Right. Venezuela, and it's on and on and on this goes because there is no, as you pointed out, this is a slippery slope. And yeah, you know, you can poo-poo that all day and say, oh, oh, it's a fallacy, the slippery slope. The fact of the matter is some slippery slopes regardless of whether or not they are logical fallacies, prove themselves over and over again in history. Right, right. So what we find is that, yeah, you know, <clears throat> killing that group of people is just fine. Oh, yeah, we can, after that group of people has been more or less dealt with, let's move on to the next one and right. the next one and the next one. And before you know it, the gun is now pointed at you. Right. And the trigger man has just as much quote-unquote uh well it, not quote-unquote has just as much legal authority at that mm -hmm. point to kill you that you right. had when you thought you were being moral mm -hmm. the defense of killing these other groups right and there's nothing to defend you at that point no and then you end up standing in the place of god determining on who lives and who dies who's what's right and what's wrong and yeah. as we start off reading at the conclusion of, of chapter three in bushido you're claiming the moral high ground but it's not morality that you want it's power precisely exactly it's it's never about morality no it's not about justice at all it's no. about power well this what is it might makes right Yep. Well, I uh, was it Mao or, Pope or Pol Pot who mm -hmm. observed that uh, political power blooms from the barrel of a gun, mm -hmm. you know, and as disgusting a sentiment as most people can agree that that is, there's a lot of truth in that. Right. 
and he's simply observing it. And, you know, this book was written not long before he went on to kill tens of millions of Chinese people, his mm -hmm. own countrymen mm -hmm. for the sake of uh, the great leap forward and the cultural revolution and on right. and on. Right. The right, the arguments change. The foundation of it always remains the same. Yep. So right now in Oregon, they're saying, well, if a person no longer is capable of providing this or that worth mm -hmm. to a society, to, then they to, have no value. Yeah. Then they have no human mm -hmm. value. Right. Well, Okay, that's that's fine. Right. So you want to take that argument. Who's to say then that anyone who is disabled right. is any better off or anyone who makes less than let's just say seventy thousand a year. Right. And on and on and on this goes. Well, and this is really the the basis for this whole the conversation about Courage, physical, moral, or daily courage is. Exactly. If you're going to say that terrorists are evil because they don't value human life, and then you turn around and say, well, we need to have laws in our country to snuff out the life of people that we have no value for anymore. Mm -hmm. Again, that's the hypocrisy Natobi is trying to point out. Yeah. Is that, uh, yeah, you, you either recognize the, the, con the internal contradiction in your statement, in your, in your ideology, or you will simply continue down that path. And inevitably, eventually be a victim of it. Of course. Always. This is why uh, when Natobi brings up Kenshin, mm -hmm. it's such a great example because it is so outside of our realm of experience. Right. You know, hey, my enemy has now been put at, at that time, well, even today, what is a fairly significant strategic disadvantage mm -hmm. being utterly cut off from salt right. in a time when there are no refrigerators. Mm -hmm. so if you wanted meat to last longer than the day you slaughtered the animal, you needed salt mm -hmm. and not in some tiny quantity. And yet seeing this dude says, well, yeah, you know, this is my enemy, but I'm going to go ahead and provide him then that salt that he needs so that we can have this fight fair. Mm -hmm. This applies then in our own lives when we, uh, whether it's in business or in personal relationships or at school or whatever, when we see people screw up and there's that temptation to leap upon it, to take advantage of right that screw up in a way that of course is going to benefit us and put them down. And we do this constantly. And yet that doesn't actually help anyone. Mm -mm. And it shows that your cause or party or side, whatever you want to call it is less than honorable right. to any objective observer. Mm -hmm. um, if you're willing to do that, how do they know that you're unwilling to, uh, metaphorically speaking, sneak up behind them and cut their throat. Mm -hmm. Well, nothing. Right. Um, yeah, you don't have friends. You compatriots. Exactly. And that's actually, that's a really important distinction. There's a difference between two, true friendship or right. brotherhood mm -hmm. and comrades right. or co-workers. Yeah, maybe we'll wrap up the episode with this then. This point is, as we were talking before we went on air about this matter. Mm -hmm. For me anyways, a, a friend, true, a true friend is one that will bleed for me and with me. Yeah. And so if you are not ready and willing to bleed with me and not willing to bleed for me, we can be acquaintances, we can be buddies, as you noted. Mm -hmm. We can be coworkers, we can be friendly. I, I will respectful, respectfully engage with you socially. but. We are not friends. Mm -hmm. uh, I have plenty of acquaintances. I have plenty of buddies. I have plenty of those people. What I need are friends. Yeah. yeah. But it takes a lot of courage then to show up every day and say, yeah, still your friend, still ready to, ready to walk the walk with you. Mm -hmm. And a lot of moral courage to be able to stand up and say, you know what? I don't really agree with what you just said. Or I don't agree with what you just did. And here's why. Yeah. Or to stick up for someone who other, someone else attacks morally. And of course, physically, to literally, if you need to, 
sit by their bedside in the hospital, carry them when they fall if necessary, drive, you know, go and bail them out of jail, drive them to their appointment, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. It may not seem like courage, but it is. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so at the base of all of this, at least this conversation for, for today, I hope that that's, I, I just read this great quote by Socrates yesterday that I can't teach anyone, I can only get them to think. And I hope that's what this podcast accomplishes at the end of everything is that you listen to it and you're thinking. Agree or disagree, I don't care. Yep. All I hope is that you've thought, that you, this forces you to think. Yep. And hopefully then, as we emphasize over and over again, thinking it, you then go and live it. Because mm-hmm. that's really the path forward with Natobe and Bushido. It's the path forward in what Pressfield lays out in the worry ethos. It's what we've been discussing since we started this, which is think it, do it, do it, think it. Yep. Yep. It does no good to say I agree or disagree and then do nothing about it. Correct. That's just the way it is. Right. Not easy. No. Or it is easy. It's just not simple. There we go. It's not simple, (laughs) but it is easy. That's something we should unpack at some point. We should. That's right. It's easy to make up your mind you're going to do it. It's just not simple sometimes. True. Because the enemy gets a vote too. (laughs) Yep. So I think unless you got anything else to add, I think that's the end of this conversation for today. No. Thank you so much for listening. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for your time and your attention. If you uh, have a book that you'd like us to read and have a conversation with us, you know, once we get enough people listening and, and, uh, you know, contacting us through Twitch or our other uh, social media platforms, we'll definitely do a Q and a. Yeah. And, yeah. and that'll give you an opportunity to interact with us too. So if you do have questions for us, you know, fire away, shoot us an email, contact us um, through Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Twitch, whatever you want to do. And Gmail. Uh, Gmail. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah. <laughs> email. Who uses that? Right. <laughs> Old people. But uh, we'll definitely, um, We'll definitely respond as best as we can. So thank you Mm -hmm. once again. We'll see you next week. Peace. Thank you.